Hello, and welcome to Beyond Belief. Today, we're going to be talking about near-death experiences. Are they just the hallucinations of a dying brain? Or are they evidence that our consciousness can actually survive the death of our bodies? That question and more coming up next on Beyond Belief. Hi, Dr. Long, and welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you here. I really appreciate the opportunity to be on your show. Thank you. It's my pleasure. And um, I just wanted to open up by mentioning that, um, you know, this is obviously a serious topic. I mean, you, you seem like a very upbeat um, and uh, fun kind of person, which is it's interesting you explore these very serious and heavy topics. Um, and so I'll start off with something, you know, a little bit heavy, which is four years ago, I uh, lost my father, unfortunately. And um, I ended up, you know, finding your your website and reading an enormous uh, amount about near death experiences. And I have to say that I found the accounts so compelling, and in a certain way, very comforting. And um, and I really appreciate uh, the fact that you've made it available for so many people, and it's so active and constantly updated. And I really recommend that people check it out. Um, but I wanted to ask you, you're a radiation oncologist by profession, that's correct? That's correct. Um, so I assume that you have experienced uh, multiple times watching people not make it um, on the operating table. And um, I assume also that people have shared their accounts with you firsthand. Um, and I'm wondering if that's what generated your initial interest in this topic. Um, and if there's any particular account that that you first experienced that uh, that registered with you as significant. Sure. Yeah, Adam, great question. First of all, I'm sorry to hear about your father. But as you surmise, many, many years ago, decades ago, I was going through one of the leading medical journals in the world, Journal of the American Medical Association, quite by accident. And the title was the phrase near-death experience. And I was puzzled. Nothing in my medical training had taught me anything about what that might mean. I mean, you're either dead or you're not. And so, goodness, how could anyone not be interested in life after death or anything related to that? So puzzled and intrigued, I read the whole article and was immediately fascinated. Here was a physician, a cardiologist, describing patients who'd had cardiac arrest, their heart stopped, and yet at that time described very accurate observations of ongoing earthly events, even while they were comatose and being resuscitated, Everything I knew medically said that's impossible. So I read some of the references, was intrigued. It was several years later. I had a college friend visiting me and over supper, uh, the wife of my college friend shared an absolutely dramatic first person near-death experience. She was under general anesthesia and coded. Her heart stopped because she had a lot of medical allergies. Her consciousness rose above her body. She saw her frantic resuscitation efforts and described it in a way I knew medically is real. It's not like Hollywood. Crash carts don't magically appear. There's a lot of panic and a chaos when it's unexpected like that. She went into a tunnel, had a life review, had a stunningly detailed near-death experience. And everything I knew medically was that this could not possibly be explained by physical brain function. And so I sort of bookmarked that, but said, I've got to learn more about this. And then a couple more years after that, intrigued by that informa limited information I had, 
I set up a website, the Near-Death Experience Research Foundation, with the goal to satisfy my curiosity. Are these experiences for real? Very quickly, when we received the first few of what would ultimately be 3, 000, over 3,500 near-death experiences, that answer came vividly from the first source of information from the near-death experiences themselves. Absolutely, they are real. And that began a voyage of, for that's now lasted over 20 years, continuing to learn about near-death experiences and share what I've learned with the world. So when you say it's not medically possible, just for the, for the benefit of the listeners who may not know what that means, um, why couldn't it be the case that this is just the last you know, dying gasps of the of the brain firing all of its neurons and some hallucination as as the brain is shutting down, um, as opposed to some transcendental experience that the the, the soul of this person is having. Mm -hmm. Well, hallucinations are by definition medically unreal, non-real memories or perceptions. With near-death experiences, as I mentioned in that example of the very first one I heard, their consciousness rose above their body. There's been a large number of studies of those observations of ongoing earthly events while physically they're unconscious or clinically dead with an absent heartbeat. It's been studied in my research and others that what they observe while their physical body is unconscious is overwhelmingly accurate, even down to the fine details. In fact, if that observations of consciousness leave the area of their physical body, if they're making observations in that what we call out of body, experience phenomena, part of the near-death experience, even if these observations of ongoing earthly events are far from their geographic, uh, geographically far from their physical body and way beyond any possible physical sensory awareness, still the observations, what they see and hear, when they go back to check them out later, are almost invariably uh, over 95% accurate in, in my experience. And of course, let's not forget with the very first near-death experience I saw, she was under general anesthesia. Under that blanket right. of sleep, it should be absolutely impossible, Adam, for there to be any conscious awareness. And then her heart stopped because of an allergic right. reaction. Well, Adam, 10 to 20 seconds after your heart stops, the EEG measure of brain electrical activity goes absolutely flat. It should be right. absolutely impossible to have any conscious experience. And yet, both under general anesthesia and having the heart stopped, it should be doubly impossible to have any experience or memory at all. And yet, by the scores, people have reported near-death experiences under exactly those circumstances, just like the first near-death experience I ever heard. So would you say that this is, I mean, you're, you're a scientist mm -hmm. and you are presenting this from a scientific perspective. Mm -hmm. Is this scientifically provable mm -hmm. or, or is this more like uh, testimony that you might hear in a court of law? Obviously, no one, you know, there were maybe a handful of witnesses to the crime we're trying to forensically piece together what might have happened, something in the past, but there is no direct knowledge of actually what happened. So how would you, how would you respond to that question? Adam, that's a great question. In order for near-death experiences to be scientifically investigated, they have to be, the term is falsifiable. In other right. words, what is shared in the near-death experience has to prove that it's false, that it's not due to some occurrence of memory of perceptions apart from the physical brain. And you can easily falsify those by, as we described, those out-of-body observations. If they were false or unreal at a substantial percentage of the time, then that would falsify those observations. It would falsify near-death experiences in general. That's not what, what's happening. 
you can falsify them by having people, and we have an example of that, who's born totally blind, who had a highly visual near-death experience. Now, if you had somebody born totally blind for whom vision is unknown and unknowable, and they have a near-death experience, well, you, it would be falsifiable if none of these people under such circumstances report vision. And yet that's not what we're observing. We actually have a series of people either legally blind or uh, severely impaired vision that have crystal clear vision described during their near-death experience, even if it's outside of their whole prior life experience. So these are just a couple examples of how you can falsify near-death experiences. You can look for what occurs during it and say, well, that's false. That's consistent with a hallucinatory, unreal experience. And we're not finding that at all. Okay. So when I hear that and read about it and interact with this information, that's my reaction is to feel, you know, compelled <laughs> by it. Um, and um, it seems very hard to explain at very least, but if this is the case, is it why is it not appearing in scientific peer peer review journals and uh, why isn't it the, the, the this month's feature in Nature and you know um, shouldn't this be a very big deal I mean shouldn't people be um, you know wanting to research this more and more I mean this is it seems like it would be one of the most exciting discoveries of all time from a scientific perspective uh, I don't get the the sense that that's happening just yet uh, is that fair to say Oh absolutely. And that's a good point. Now, first of all, near-death experience is actually mainstream in the scientific and medical literature. There's been well over 200 publications in peer-reviewed medical and scientific literature, including some of the leading medical and scientific journals in the world. So it's there. It's just, and I agree with you, not nearly there as much as it should be. I think there's several barriers that keep people from investigating near-death experiences in a scholarly scientific manner. First of all, it's hard to access near-death experiencers. Um, they're, they're not apt to go find, you know, find a researcher and say, hey, I'm, I'm ready to share my experience. So you really need to find large mm -hmm. numbers of people that had a near-death experience, and that, that's a little bit difficult to do. But I think even more importantly than that, anything in the so-called paranormal, even if it's not paranormal at all, like near-death experiences, uh, good gosh, a Gallup survey published in 1981 estimated perhaps as many as 5% of Americans had a near-death experience. So they're not rare. They happen to people of all walks of life, physicians, scientists, uh, you name it. They, they, they're a, a very broad-based experience. So again, I, it, it's puzzling to me too why there isn't more research and interest in this in something which has such dramatic implications for consciousness, for life after death, and, and literally... Uh, meaning and purpose on earth, what's really important uh, that we hear over and over near-death experiences. So again, I think it's just that scientific taboo that that keeps it from being uh, studied more. And of course, one thing that drives scientific discoveries, unfortunately, is money. And it's very difficult, close to impossible actually, to get a grant or federal funding, if you will, to study something like near-death experiences because of that taboo about its association with paranormal again, which it's really not. It's, it, these are normal experiences. Okay. So uh, I noticed on your website that you have uh, won an award recently for an essay that you um, wrote on this topic, and congratulations on that. Um, and uh, I'd like to read a quote that I, I found there. I truncated it a little bit because it's a little it's a little long, but I think that this is, this. it's a very good one, but it's, it's a, a compelling, again, account of uh, someone's experience. And it opens the door 
for me at least for a, a bunch of other questions. So I just want to read it to you for a second, if that's okay. Yeah. Sure. This is um, this is by a woman named Joan who had a spinal anesthetic for surgery on her ankle, and something apparently went wrong, and she died. Um, and she describes her experience of death as follows. She says, I went from being in my body to being in a place of absolute love. I can only describe it like being in a swimming pool, but even my body was filled with this loving. I was one with this place, but also apart from it. It was still me, but I was far more than me. I was one with everything and it was all good. I heard beautiful music, but it wasn't our music. The music itself was part of me, but it was also much more than me. I felt weightless and free, absolutely free. I was enfolded in this loving and it was part of it too. There was not one single part of me of anything else that was not love. Individuals <laughs> did not exist in the same way as we do here. And then she says a few other things and she says, we are interconnected as one. There is no such thing as, as death. This experience has changed me. So I would describe that quote as sort of typical of what I, I read in your essay, and you probably have a dozen quotes or so um, in there uh, along the same lines. Mm -hmm. So would you say that this is a typical experience that somebody has? Do they go come out of this saying life is about love, interconnectedness, mm -hmm. um, you know, music, which I, I particularly found interesting? Um, is this a typical description or is this uh, somehow different from the, the, the average? It, it's a good question, Adam. It's a typical detailed near-death experience. We have literally, you know, well, that's one example, and some would say anecdotal. It's not. We literally have hundreds of near-death experiences that bring up those concepts uh, in a variety of different ways, but all converging down exactly the way you just shared it right there, Adam. Uh, you talk about love. Is that common in near-death experiences? Well, in the most recent version of our survey that we have on the website, we ask directly, have you, did you, during your near-death experience, did you encounter any information regarding love? And remarkably, close to half of people checked yes and went on in the narrative response to describe that type of love exactly like you just shared, Adam, uh, unearthly, profound, all-encompassing, uh, something that is beyond anything that, that we've ever experienced in our life, any of us. And yet, uh, over and over, times literally hundreds, if not over thousands of times in near-death experiences, I've heard that concept of love expressed. And, and the fact that it is so unearthly, that it is so all-encompassing beyond anything in their life experience, frankly, is one more line of evidence for the reality of near-death experiences. Same thing with a more difficult concept you brought up of unity, connection, oneness. When near-death experiencers describe that, they're much more likely to use the stronger word unity than the weaker word connection. And again, in mm -hmm. the most recent version of our survey, we asked directly during your near-death experience, did you encounter any information or awareness of a mystical connection, unity, or oneness? And again, right about 45% of people answered yes. Uh, and with the narrative responses, it was exactly as the near-death experience you shared. In the afterlife, in the near-death experience, they become aware of a unity, a oneness, that we obviously are not aware of in our earthly life. I, I've been, uh, it's been amazing to me, literally over 20 years of researching near-death experience, how remarkably consistently that's described. You know, again here, Adam, is one more example of something that is so outside of our normal earthly life experience, and yet so overwhelmingly consistently described in near-death experiences, that that's simply one more line of evidence that these near-death experiences are real. They're bringing back consistent observations of something far outside of their earthly life. And so you 
you have to go back to that basic scientific principle. That's what real is consistently observed and love, mm -hmm. unity, oneness, overwhelmingly consistently observed in near death experiences. So I want, I'd like to get into some of the theological aspects of this and, you know, some of the, the spiritual ramifications, but I want to just ask one follow on question to that, to what we just discussed in terms of love. <clears throat> You know that psychedelics are making a bit of a comeback. You know there there are serious people who are suggesting that you know there are ways of using it that are uh, beneficial. And if you, you know, go online and you observe someone having an ayahuasca experience or an LSD experience, like they they use these terms also, and they seem to be coming to a, the same kind of realization that it's all it's all about love. I experienced love in a real way for the first time. I, I, I see that the interconnectedness of the entire universe. Why do you suppose that is? Mm -hmm. And would you describe this as a fundamental drive of humanity that, that people yeah. in their day-to-day -day experiences, what are they really looking for? They're looking for things that are perhaps transcendental. Um, so I ask you the, just to comment on that. And then sure. also it, is the fact that it happens during psychedelic experience evidence to the other side saying, no, the, the dying person is having a psychedelic kind of experience and whether we or not their brain is functioning in the way that we understand, it's not spiritual, it's psychological. Yeah, That's a lot, I understand, but you can no, handle a, it. That's an important <laughs> question because you hear a lot about in this day and age. I think the basic lesson about these ayahuasca or other, the most common drug mentioned is reproducing some aspect of near-death experience is what's called DMT. I think the uh, experiences that are described are a vivid reminder. You need to be very cautious about trusting what you read on the Internet. Not surprisingly, DMT or ayahuasca experiences that have these seeming transcendental, mystical, uh, dramatic, positive things are much more likely to get clicks on YouTube or on other areas on the Internet where they're found. I would encourage any viewer of this, if you're curious about, again, the most commonly stated uh, psychotropic, that's brain acting medication that reproduces part of MD, uh, NDE, near-death experience, which is DMT. If you want to find out the truth about that, you hop over on the internet to Arrowwood, E-R-O-W-I-D.org. On that website, you can find DMT experiences shared first person by people that actually had these experiences. These aren't fluffed up. These aren't biased by getting more clicks than others. This is the truth. And if you read any number of DMT experiences or other psychedelic experiences on that website shared by the people that had them with no predisposed uh, idea that they want to get their face or their word or, or whatever out, all you have to do is read 30 of them or heck, even read 10 or 20 DMT experiences on arrowwood.org and then shoot over to my website, enderf.org, and compare that to 30 or heck even 10 or 20 near-death experiences shared first person again, and you will see vividly that there is no relationship between those experiences. Uh, DMTs or psychedelic experiences may on very uncommon to rare occasions reproduce some elements of near-death experience, and I believe that, but I think they are very uncommon to rare. Uh, certainly, if you read any number of first person DMT experiences, compare it to near-death experiences, you can vividly see from your set by yourself that they are dramatically different experiences overall. Okay. Okay. And therefore you would say the answer is no, the uh, near death experiences don't really have anything to do with, uh, with uh, 
a hallucination, like we said originally, right. and nothing to do with a um, a psychedelic aspect of the brain that's getting triggered in the last moments. A absolutely. And furthermore, if you read, as I have, these uh, psychedelic-induced experiences, first-person shared experiences, you will see exactly what I've seen. You don't see any of those types of elements or characteristics of a near-death experience that helps us to understand its reality. You almost never see what we call veridical perception in near-death experiences, that out-of-body observations, what they see and hear of ongoing earthly events being re uh, real. That's very uncommon. You almost never have someone who's on a psychotropic medication or drug experience. Uh, if they're severely visually impaired, you almost never have them having clear vision. Uh, of course, you never have people, uh, other other sort of things that we've done with research with near-death experiences to validate the reality. Certainly, um, they're not clinically dead like people that have a near-death experience. They're not unconscious like people that have near-death experiences and still have lucid experiences. Uh, they don't have uh, typically the other characteristics of near-death experiences, a trip to an unearthly realm where they encounter deceased loved ones, a life review, um, they may have that sense of overwhelming love that's fairly common, but I would submit it near-death experiences, it's far more common and far more unearthly. Again, there's really no substitute, Adam, to just read a large number of both types of experiences and decide for yourself. Okay, I've never done that, so um, that, that's uh, that's in the plan going forward. Okay. But um, going back to the now, concept Adam, of just, I hate to, Adam, I hate to break in, but actually on our website, we have actually issued a challenge to the world. We, uh, because of a common belief that DMT experiences reproduce some aspect of near-death experiences, we have posted on our website the DMT challenge. In other words, we encourage people to read a group of DMT experiences and a group of near-death experiences. And if anybody believes that these experiences are the same, please email us back. That's been up for, gosh, I don't know, six, nine months. And so far, absolutely zero people have emailed us and uh, express the belief that they think that after re reading first person experiences of both types uh that they're related okay i'll check that out um let's let's go back to the concept that we mentioned of, of unity mm -hmm. and um i can't help but be struck by the fact that when i, I read about the hallmarks of the near-death experience it it certainly smacks of a monotheistic vision of what the afterlife is, um, especially the experience of a god mm -hmm. um, or some type of powerful supernatural force. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the love, as you mentioned, and, 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 and many other aspects, you know, in terms of a, a lack of fear, um, you know, the, the meeting of, of previously deceased relatives, there's, there's so many aspects of it. Would you say that it is more geared in your understanding towards a monotheistic uh, worldview? Or are there people who report two or more gods? Are there people who report um, seeing specific deities? Um, what, what can you tell us about that? Sure. Great question. Now, uh, certainly monotheism uh, for viewers, that means one god, and that means you know, as opposed to polytheism, which means uh, multiple gods. Well, in near-death experiences, virtually every time people describe a god or a, uh, you know, an ultimate spiritual being, they're using it in the singular. They seem to encounter one. So near-death experience evidence does point to there being uh, monotheistic 
belief. Uh, in other words, one God. Now, that's not hugely surprising because don't forget in near-death experiences, they're typically, especially when they're aware of God or in, they're in that unearthly, if you will, heavenly realm, they have that sense of unity and oneness. So given that sense of oneness, it's not surprising that there are described multiple discarnate separate gods just because what oneness that concept seems to to be overriding um, certainly it's consistent with monotheism in in that sense it's it's very rare that we have people describe what you will multiple gods another important point is that when we have the narrative area where people describe an awareness or encounter of god by the way uh, around 45 percent of people that completed the most recent version of the survey, 834 near-death experiencers to be specific, uh, that, that high a percentage of people were either aware of or actually encountered God or the way I word the question, a supreme being. In the narrative box that follows, many, many people will say language to the effect of, what I encountered was beyond an earthly term. God is an earthly term. This is far beyond any earthly term possible. Earthly terms are limiting. God is the best term, and yet what I encountered is far beyond a description by a single word or words in the English language. So be aware that a lot of near-death experiencers uh, describe that this, this being they encountered is, again, God is the best word, and yet it transcends English uh, and literally any language on the planet in terms of how overwhelming, majestic uh, this, this entity was. There are multiple um, religions, even monotheistic ones, that describe a place of punishment or judgment, mm -hmm. um, whether it's temporary or permanent in some cases. And what I don't find in near-death experience accounts is anything remotely like that. Uh, and I'm wondering, A, if, if you have heard anything along those lines, B, does, would you say that that is evidence against those concepts with even within monothe monotheism. Mm -hmm. um, and are, is there any other way of explaining it uh, where you could preserve both concepts? Sure. Another great question, a very common question. Um, encountering or being aware of hellish realms, if you will, or that hell is a, a broad word, but, but hell-like realms that, that have frightening uh, unearthly hellish imagery are rare and near-death experiences. I mean, I've studied over 3,500 of them. That's how many have been shared with our website and posted back. And yet, when I look carefully with a fairly high bar of evidentiality to be sure we're, we're talking about near-death experiences and not some other thing like, you know, I won't go into detail, but intensive care unit delirium is a, is a common confounder for other researchers. So with a very strict bar of evidentiality that this really is a near-death experience that occurred during the near-death experiences, I've only been able to find a little over 20 near-death experiences that described or encountered a hellish realm. Of that approximately 20 experiences, about half of them simply became aware of a hellish realm. In other words, mm -hmm. they were passing through an unearthly, if you will, heavenly realm, and there was a very discreet, segregated, separate area that they were aware of was hell, and they were either knew that as they were going by or they were told that by whatever spiritual being was with them. So that's that's part of it. And I think that observation is significant. It suggests that that hellish realm is segregated apart from divided off from the rest of heavenly realms. When people say there's no hell, 
that can exist in heavenly realms. They're literally correct based on those near-death experience observations. Now, the other half of the people are actually impacted by and a part of enter into that hellish realm, which are uh, remarkably frightening. So without going into a lot of graphic detail, that's hell. Now, my conclusion after reading a lot of these is, first of all, uh, a lot of people in the hellish realm have the ability to say, you know, please rescue me and we'll, we'll call out to, to God or, uh, uh, you know, just ask to, to be removed. And the great majority of the time, they're then immediately taken out of that hellish realm. And I think that's significant. My best guess as to how hellish realms exist when, as we discussed earlier, love seems to be fundamental in the afterlife and the entire universe is very simple. And that is in the afterlife, there's going to be the rare, mercifully rare uh, spiritual entity that is so unable to let go of their uh, evil, their resentment, their anger, their destructive uh, uh, tendencies toward other spiritual beings that they are. And in the afterlife, I might add, generally, your uh, belief is you're known for who you are and everything and all you are immediately by all other beings. So you can imagine right. how rough it would be for somebody to be that malevolent and be immediately known by all the beings in heaven. So my impression is that they literally have the ability to choose to be among other beings by themselves in a separate realm, because hmm. paradoxically, that's their heaven. That's where they're the most comfortable. That's where an environment that is most consistent with their beliefs and values. So I believe, and this is also an expression of what we, a very important concept in near-death experiences, that being the supremacy of free will. So I think just mm -hmm. as we have free will on earth, and that's described a lot in near-death experiences as a part of the wisdom, I think even in the afterlife, you have the free will choice to make one, or I would suspect a series of bad decisions and find yourself in that hellish realm. But I also believe that consistent with free will, even these malevolent beings there have the choice to leave that, uh, let go of that environment and, and return to their heavenly hosts. I, I'm not aware of any, Adam, of any near-death experience researcher that believes that based on near-death experience wisdom, that there's a permanent involuntary hell. And I think that, that helps explain how it can be consistent with an overwhelmingly loving God. Okay. I mean, that sounds all very familiar to me in, in terms of, you know, my my understanding of the spiritual dimension. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's something uh, validating about hearing it from this perspective and, um, and fascinating. Um, so do you think that these accounts, given their brevity mm -hmm. and it almost seems like these folks are like dipping their toe into this experience enough to have a report to bring back. And in some cases, an exchange of information, which seems inexplicable. Mm -hmm. um, but two questions, like, would you say that it's accurate? They didn't really go fully in. Like there's often uh, what's described as like a bridge or, a, or, or some barrier you have to go past in order to like really be there. Um, is yeah so like would, would you say that these people like went up into the you know the the mud room of the hereafter but never fully you know made it in the, into the mansion so to speak uh, I, I love that analogy of the mud room and that's interesting adam you're i you are understanding i think some deeper wisdom and near-death experiences 
what I understand about near-death experiences is that's absolutely correct. I think a, a loving co-created experience with near-death experiences, you can't be hearing, seeing, perceiving things that are so outside of any earthly existence that you've had that it would be confusing, that it wouldn't, uh, you wouldn't understand from, you wouldn't learn from it. So it has to be, you know, you have to, to have what the equivalent is a vision there, uh, which, and communication, which by the way, in near-death experiences is essentially always telepathic. It's not earthly, but at least there's, you know, communication analogous to, to earth in that sense. Uh, and that perception. So, I'm, and you're right, there's often described a bridge or a chasm, and it's not at all uncommon in near-death experiences that what lies beyond that bridge, beyond that chasm, seems to be an overwhelmingly brighter light. They tend to feel an even more powerful sense of love emanating there. They tend to have that feeling of, gosh, I, I'd like to go there. So I think near-death experiences are, to some extent, allegorical of an even greater reality, which is an even greater more majestic, uh, more awesome, beyond anything that we possibly can imagine from our prior earthly lives and, and sensors. So uh, I think this all, all of this near-death experience and this consistent view of an afterlife is profoundly good news for all of humanity. <laughs> and yet yes. I think that there's probably even more above and beyond that that exceeds even what we can uh, conceptualize and understand based on our earthly background. Um. Do you have any speculation as to how it is that the religions of the world hundreds, if not thousands of years ago, were writing and speaking about these matters without the benefit of resuscitation science, um, uh, you know, which has really grown, as, as I understand, in the last you know, number of decades? Um, how, how is it? Can you, can you speculate on how they knew any of this? Yeah, I looking at the uh, ancient religions and the writing they had, I don't think... I mean, there's some different scholar, scholarly views about that, but I, I just don't see the kind of concepts that we see in modern study of near-death experiences, that love, that unity, uh, that, that God, that afterlife, that there's no judgment, no fear. I just don't see that even in the ancient writings. So I, I don't think the ancient religious writers were really influenced much, if any, by near-death experiences. I mean, we're talking thousands of years ago, when far less people were resuscitated. And of course, let's not forget, even if you had a near-death experience thousands of years ago, and they almost certainly did, very few people could write. And you're not going to write down something that is radically different from what the prevailing consensus is of thinking at that point in time thousands of years ago. So that would have probably been considered such an outlier that people would be very reluctant to share it and far less likely to write it down and far less likely for that to be Part of the limited writing from thousands of years ago that made it here to, to for review in this day and age. So I think uh, I, th I think that's probably why. It, well, that's my view on it. But certainly, there's other people with different views. Okay, maybe maybe I'll email you afterwards. But um, my I, I think there's a lot, at least in in um, at least in the Judaic tradition, there's there's a lot that really covers these ideas. I mean, just the mm -hmm. the. Um, there's a, a meditation called the Shema, which is recited twice daily. And that is, it, it's, it's about the oneness of, of God and the oneness of existence. Um, and after that declaration, the, the very next words are via Havta, which means you will love. Um, and well, it's, it's for me, for my, for my personal experience, it's just, it's interesting because as I read your work, 
I, I like can almost check boxes, you know, of yes, yes, I've seen this, yes, I've seen this, and it's and and I feel a great sense of validation in it, you know, um, and I just find it an interesting idea to explore that somehow some of these ideas were were captured a long, long time before the science existed. Um, but you know, I'm sure I would it's a big topic. I am extremely interested in what you could email me about that. So please do. And, and I okay. will look forward to that because that, that's a big deal. Uh, you know, I'm still, you know, very interested in other religious beliefs and how they relate to near-death experiences. So what you just shared there is very, very important and significant. I look forward to what you, you can email me. Okay, good. We'll do that. So um, I have time for a few more questions and I, I, I personally could have this conversation for quite a long time more. Um, but let's, let's narrow it down for a second. I'm just looking at my questions to pick the, the best ones. Um, what's the biggest challenge to the whole concept of the near-death experience? Like when, when, when someone challenges you, some skeptics get uh, on your site, uh, how would you say, what's the best question that they have? Yeah, that's good. Uh, I've debated and discussed a lot with skeptics over the years. And interestingly, there's been, with regard to near-death experiences, over 20 different skeptical explanations brought up over the years. Now, the reason there's so many is that no one or several of these skeptical explanations make sense, even to the skeptics themselves. So it's, I feel like when I deal with skeptic arguments of near-death experience over the last 20 years I've been doing this, it's like hitting a moving target. I mean, mm -hmm. we've gone through things, you know, a psychotropic drug called ketamine. We went through uh, magnetic brain stimulation at another point in time. We went through, uh, you know, people questioning are, are, you know, these are these experiences really happening? That was dropped after a while. Uh, we've gone through, I mean, just a, an array. It seems like time by time, there's been sort of a different, most commonly held skeptic argument up until DMT or psychotropic drugs, which is the most popular recent one occurring in the last few years. I think one of the more, if you want to, had to pick a skeptic argument, there was a, uh, a major skeptic that published the concept that near-death experiences were fragments of memory from entering into unconsciousness or returning from unconsciousness. And that's certainly a reasonable hypothesis. However, it explains nothing that you observe during a near-death experiences. These out-of-body observations aren't occurring when they're entering into unconsciousness or recovering. They're occurring, boom, while they're observing their body fully unconscious or clinically dead, typically down below them. So it doesn't seem to be that way. Uh, with a cardiac arrest or heart attack, if you will, you're typically amnesic, meaning you don't have any memories for a good one to several hours prior to the cardiac arrest and afterwards. So that almost single-handedly refutes that these are fragments of memory that are real. Uh, and that doesn't explain anything else you observe during near-death experiences, the overwhelming consistent flow of those elements, uh, tunnel meeting deceased relatives, a life review, which is, by the way, uh, extremely accurate, even if they review events in their typically early life, toddler life, that they'd forgotten about when they check with their parents. Uh, almost invariably, what they saw in their life review was absolutely accurate to the finest detail, even if they forgot about it. doesn't explain the blind, including blind from birth, having visual near-death experiences. Uh, and it sure doesn't explain why near-death experiences are consistent worldwide, regardless mm -hmm. of the individual's background, belief, or lack of belief. 
than all the overwhelming consistency that we see. So again, while that's the best, if you, that's another sort of popular scholarly argument, it absolutely doesn't hold water when you look at the totality of, of evidence for the reality of near-death experience. That's pretty thorough, um, pretty convincing to me. Um, but two more questions, and then yeah, sure. we're unfortunately out of time for today. But um, <clears throat> what what's the most compelling yeah. account that you've heard? It could be recent, could be from a long time ago. But if you just had to outline something that was stood out for you, well, what would it be? Sure, uh, good question, Adam. Many years ago, I interviewed Vicky. Vicky was born blind from birth. To her vision was unknown and unknowable. Uh, for someone born totally blind, you literally cannot explain vision in terms of the remaining five senses. I know I tried with Vicky, it's impossible. So Vicky was involved in a bad car accident when she was in her early 20s. And to respond to the obvious question, no, she was not driving. She was a singer <laughs> in a bar. And okay. uh, unfortunately, an inebriated patron was trying to get her home, uh, didn't make it and crashed. But the first time Vicky saw her body, she had that out-of-body experience during her near-death experience. She was above her body. Her initial emotion reaction was not wonder and awe and excitement, but fear. She was frightened because she'd never had visual perceptions and literally didn't know who was laying on the gurney in the emergency room below her. And it was only after she correlated her sense of long hair and, interestingly, a ring that her father had given her that she then recognized that was her down below. Vicki went on to have a stunningly detailed near-death experience. She described what many near-death experiencers describe, uh, among other elements, some of which we've talked about today. But she had described what's called 360-degree vision. She was simultaneously mm -hmm. and immediately aware of visual uh, ongoing events in front of her, behind her, up, down, right, left. So technically, it's spherical vision as opposed to the two-dimensional term 360-degree vision. Uh, and there's absolutely no way that she could have had that type of a near-death experience, stunning visual awareness to her who envisioned is totally unknowable. In fact, when I interviewed her, I said, well, you do know that the rest of us on Earth have what's called a pie-shaped visual field because of the location of our eyes and the skull. And she laughed and literally didn't believe it because don't forget, in her entire life experience, vision was spherical. 360 degrees, and she literally couldn't believe literally or understand why vision should be limited to a pie-shaped visual field. So that really, in, in my relatively early days of research, stuck out as saying there's absolutely no way that that could be uh, any other explanation other than a real event exactly as she described it, uh, a vision in somebody, a highly visual experience in somebody of whom vision is unknown and unknowable. Um, so that, that was, that, that really struck me uh, vividly. That's wild. Um, and fascinating again. Mm -hmm. Um, okay. My last question is many people in the accounts that I've read in your, in your book and, and on your website describe themselves as having a, a, a transformed relationship with death. Yeah. Um, I'm curious for yourself, you know, I, I don't believe you've had a near-death experience yourself? No, I haven't. Okay. Has your interaction with all this material at this point transformed your feelings about death, either when contemplating your own or when, God forbid, something happens in your life? Has it changed you in that sense? Yeah. It has absolutely changed me dramatically. The evidence is so overwhelming 
that there's an afterlife, a wonderful afterlife, and it's for all of us, you, me, and every viewer here. So to see the evidence for that so overwhelmingly has absolutely transcend, transformed my view of my concern about my personal death. I may fear the dying process, but I absolutely don't fear what lies beyond death because of the overwhelming evidence that there is a real afterlife. And as near-death experiencers say, in that afterlife, if you will, that heavenly realm, they over and over describe that as being their real home. And I think that's significant. So, uh, and we actually asked that as a survey question, how their uh, near-death experiencers' fear of death has changed as a result of their experience. And not surprisingly, a very dramatic reduction in fear of death, a very dramatic increased belief in an afterlife. No surprise, they're drawing from their own personal experience. It's all also helped me as a radiation oncology physician to work more courageously with people that are facing that life-threatening event of cancer in their life. Uh, I certainly work, so many of our patients die, but ultimately uh, that's made me more courageous and more loving, more compassionate, because I know I haven't failed, nobody's failed if they die, they're gonna go on living in that afterlife so vividly described in thousands of near-death experiences. They'll be together again with their loved ones and that is a profound message of hope and reassurance, not only to me, but to everybody who's ever been concerned about their own mortality or the mortality of those that they love. Great answer um, and a fascinating conversation, as I knew it would be. And I really would like to thank you for your time and for being here today. I'd like to encourage anybody who sees this to check out the books of Dr. Jeffrey Long and his website, which we're going to post and links to it. Um, and I, uh, I hope that you will continue to do the great work that you're doing. I, it's, um, it's having a very positive impact. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much. Great questions. Great interview. Really appreciate it. Enjoy being here. Okay. So thank you. And, um, once again, thank you for joining beyond belief. Please take a moment to subscribe to our channel and stay abreast of all the exciting stuff that we have going on. It's been a pleasure and we'll see you next time. Thank you.